You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. All right. Well, welcome to Criterion Channel Surfing. My guest today is friend of the show, Michael Hutchins. Michael, thank you so much for joining us again and for uh, getting ready to launch this new format for the show as we do deeper dives into uh, these loose bundles and uh, loose collections of uh, films that we uh, gather from the permanent streaming only library on the the channel. So uh, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm very excited too about this new phase of the of the podcast, and uh, and I like I like what you're doing. So let's do it. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, before we uh, get into this, uh, let's just do a quick check in. How are you doing? What are what's going on with you in uh, the world of stats for the the Criterion Channel? Uh, <laughs> How how has it been for you as you're you're keeping track of all things Criterion right now? Yeah, it's it's been pretty busy lately because I've discovered some things that the channel is doing, which has surprised a lot of people. Um, it was uh, we had a bundle uh, that was entered back that uh, came online in November, and it disappeared in the middle of January, which surprised yeah. a lot of people. You know, and that was a Sony Classics, but Sony Pictures Classic Collection, and. Uh, I suppose, and the way I figured it out, they must have had like a template where they where they feed in the films they're going to leave at the end of the month. But mm-hmm. somehow they never programmed it to to put films in that are entering that are leaving at in the middle of the month. So you have to forgive them for not giving a lot of people a heads up. I had seen all of them, and I watched new ones that I had not seen, so I was able to to get them all in before they left. But that, uh, they were all just two month uh, engagements, which is shorter than normal anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, you know you you did give a good reminder uh in the channel club facebook group that you know this is why it's never a, a really good idea to wait until uh films hit the expiring uh list uh each month to to watch film to watch them because you just you don't know when when rights are gonna cause a film to disappear and you know sometimes criterion isn't going to necessarily have control over that it might the rights might suddenly uh go away uh and uh you know we've had a couple of films that have disappeared at the last minute yeah and so the good idea is as you said i suggest you know if it's if there's a film that comes on the channel and you really want to see it then you know make some time to see it you know within the within the first month uh that it's loaded to the channel yeah no that's that's a very good good idea well, I uh, I definitely want to uh, spend a little bit of time uh, briefly just thanking, uh, before we get into the, the episode, thanking our Patreon supporters. I, I'm always really grateful for their support, for uh, supporting the show, and uh, making sure that uh, 
we get the the hosting of the show uh, continuing to go. It's always uh, really great to have that support and ongoing support to, to keep this this running. So uh, I always want to make sure to send them a shout out. And uh, it's always great to have that. And uh, uh, if you do want to be a Patreon supporter, uh, you get unedited uh, early episodes of the show. And uh, you can do that by uh, signing up at uh, patreon.com slash josh hornbeck you get those uh unedited episodes right after we record so right after michael and i talk uh this episode will go up on patreon and uh you'll be able to listen to it um all of the little uh hiccups and pauses and uh stammers uh, so you get it all <laughs> in all of its glory right Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I do want to thank our Patreon supporters. It really is uh, helpful and keeps uh, the show uh, going. So thank you. Yeah. All. yeah. Thanks, patrons. Uh, also, I do want to just uh, as part of this housekeeping, just want to just uh, we've mentioned there's a slight change in format for the the show. In the past, we've been doing episodes where we would each choose a film based on a theme. We would talk about the new releases and expiring titles. We've done some different variations on that over the last few years. And uh, we're going to shift slightly where we'll do a very quick episode that is just focused on talking about uh, doing a quick rundown of the new releases, um, which we got earlier in January. Uh, Michael and I talked about that. And then uh, we're going to start doing uh, somewhat deeper dives into the back catalog of the Criterion channel. Um, Michael and I have talked numerous times on the podcast about uh, the permanent streaming-only library, and these are films that Criterion has the rights to that um, may never get released on disc and that uh, are just there on the channel. These might have in, at one point gotten released in an Eclipse series, but um, with the changing landscape of physical media, they now have this permanent home on the streaming channel. And some of these get released on uh, Blu-ray at some point, but some of them will just forever be hosted on the the channel and while it's easy to get wowed by all of the new bundles that come each month these permanent streaming only titles often get overlooked and so we're going to spend uh time on this podcast really uh digging into these and uh highlighting them for you all here uh and uh that's what we're going to do today the very first uh in this uh series fantastic idea josh i i I want people to realize that, you know, out of 400-something films, there at least half of them are very well worth watching. These aren't films that, that Criterion just kind of got the rights to and just kind of pushed aside and say, well, we'll deal with that later. These are some great films in this in this yeah. collection, yeah. Yeah, and they're all over the place, too. Yes. Uh, there's classics of, you know, Japanese cinema. There are classics from all over the world. Uh, there are comedies. There are dramas. There are action films. There, there's really something here for just about every taste. Right. Uh, and uh, that to me is part of what drew me to wanting to uh, subscribe to Hulu in the first place when uh, Criterion had their partnership with Hulu. 
uh, and uh, we suddenly got access to this incredible treasure trove of films that uh, we just didn't have access to before. And uh, as the the library keeps expanding, as we keep getting access to more titles, to me, it's just uh, more and more exciting. Yeah, I agree with you. It's 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 a great uh, library of films. Yeah. So this month we're going to start by talking about uh, the the earlier films of Carlos Saura, and we're going to start by talking about just three of them. Uh, there's too many to talk about in one <laughs> episode. We're not going to dig into the entire bundle uh, because I think that that would uh, uh, necessitate a, a, an hours long dive into uh, into that. The, the films there since there are so many films that are now in uh, the permanent streaming only library but uh we're going to talk about three films today and uh i'm i'm excited to to talk about these um uh, michael you mentioned this as uh something you'd be interested in talking about what was it that drew you to uh talking about the saura films yeah i had, i was not familiar with most of his films i had seen kriya Corvus, I believe is how it's pronounced, and uh, a couple of others. Of course, the three flamenco films that were part of the Eclipse set that are out of print, mm -hmm. and his his uh, the documentary he did for the Olympics, the marathon uh, set in Barcelona. Yeah. But other than other than that, I, I just wanted to to you know go into his uh, his into his filmology, and there and uh, I, I was surprised by just how good they were especially early on i know mm -hmm. he had some workman uh like films to begin with but the films we're going to start talking about now he really came into his own yeah yeah i i like you i'd seen the uh the ones that have been released on physical disc and uh one of his um later films uh as part of the podcast and uh, yeah i just had not done a whole lot of of digging into his earlier films and so yeah i'm i'm really this is this is, gives me a great opportunity to dig into a filmmaker that uh, uh i've admired uh, but i hadn't seen many of his other work and so uh, i'm i'm excited to talk with to you about these Great, yeah, and and what's amazing is he's still making films today. I know, I you know, know. He's he's uh, over ninety years old, and he's been making films for more than sixty years. So yeah, so he's got a wide body of work there that, that as you said earlier, that it's going to be hard for us to discuss like even the first three within an hour or so. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot. There's thirteen films on the channel right now. Mm -hmm. Some people would think, well, that's a lot of films from one director. Is is, there, is that like a record? But it's not anywhere near the record. There are other directors. That, <laughs> there's a lot of directors out there that have 30, you know, 20 and 30 films yeah. in, uh, on the channel right now. Yeah. But yeah, but, but he's one of he's one of the top ones. So yeah. yeah. So he's, he's got a nice body of work there that we can that we can delve into. Yeah. Well, as you said, he's still working today. Um, yeah. He, uh, as I was doing some research for the podcast, uh, he got his start working in uh, 1955. He was working on uh, documentary shorts. Uh, his first, uh, one of his first documentaries was Flamenco, mm -hmm. which, you know, that uh, is a theme that he returned to later uh, with the Flamenco trilogy. And then, you know, has returned to time and time again throughout his career, the dance documentaries that he has done. Um, I think one of the most recent of his films that I've seen is one called Fados, uh, a film about uh, Portuguese dance uh, style. 
which was just gorgeous and just a magnificent film. So, I mean, he's still making really incredible work today. It's not just that he's still working and kind of just churning out films, but he's working at a really high level too. Um, and uh, after his documentaries, he was doing uh, neorealist, uh, some neorealist dramas before he uh, started playing with uh, symbolism. I know he was influenced by Bunuel. So, you know, he, he started playing with symbolism and imagery so that he was able to comment on Spanish society under fascism and under Franco. Um, it was a good way to get around the censors. So, you know, before this bundle appeared, you know, we had Cria Cuervos, uh, which has been in the, the collection for a while. We had the Flamenco trilogy, which has been out of print for a while as well. Yeah, yeah. And then Marathon was part of the Olympics box set. Um, Peppermint Frappe uh, and Deprisa Deprisa were both part of the Hulu Criterion bundle. Is that correct? Yes, they were. Yeah. So those have been around for a while. And then I think Los Ojos Vendados, that's been on the channel for a few years. Yeah, that, w- that was actually loaded whenever uh, the channel was on Filmstruck. Yeah. And that was the last film we had of his until this recent bundle that was loaded, loaded back in uh, at the end of 2022. Yeah, so we just we just got this incredible like wealth of films that are now licensed by Janus. And so we have a a, a real wonderful collection of his work so we can contextualize uh, some of these films uh, a little more appropriately, right? Yes, uh, and they're all uh, narrative films. They're not like his performance or yeah. documentary films. So it it, it does kind of skew in one direction. But uh, it was around the time he started making flamenco films, they started making those performance films. And those are spread now throughout his, through the rest of his filmography. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is, uh, I'm I'm really, really grateful that uh, Criterion has, has given us access to this because, um, like you said, this is a huge body of work that is now available for us to dig into. And, you know, we'll be dividing uh, the films of, of Carlos Saura up probably over the next few years, uh, talking about them uh, on the podcast, because uh, uh, there's a lot here and there's a lot to dig into. Uh, I think he's he's got a lot to say in his films. And um, oh, yes. uh, I think um, there's some, some really really interesting themes that he's digging in here. And uh, so the three films we're going to talk about today are going to be uh, the first three in the bundle. Um, uh, the first two of which uh, were especially well received and uh, kind of helped launch him internationally and uh, uh, kind of make a name for himself. And uh, those are The Hunt, Peppermint Frappe, and Stress is Three. So The Hunt, uh, let's talk about The Hunt and let's get started there. Michael, uh, what what are your first thoughts about The Hunt before we dig into the story? It was uh, a film I watched when it first came on the channel last uh, a few months ago. Yeah. And I, I went into it blind. I didn't know anything about it. I uh, didn't even know that it was an award winner. And I, I really enjoyed it. But watching it again for this podcast, it, it, it really struck me how an extraordinary film it really is. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was something that I suppose maybe a second or third watch is one that would lead to more appreciation of, of what he's doing in this film, especially it being one of his early films. I think he was in his early thirties when he made it. 
Mm. And uh, the end, as you said earlier, he, he had did did some earlier work, but this was the film that broke out, and of course, uh, it won the Berlin um, Film Festival Silver Bear for best direction. Yeah. So, uh, so that was probably, as you said, his first uh, major international recognition. Yeah, this film is really uh, assured, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's from a filmmaker who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who uh, is is really willing to, uh, I think, to explore the the darker sides of um, Spanish culture. Uh, and, and to do it in a way that doesn't frighten or doesn't isn't so in your face that um, he would get in trouble with the Spanish censors. <laughs> um, and yet it is it is so uh, explosive uh, right. in so many ways. Uh, this is a film about uh, three friends who uh, go hunting and they bring along one of their uh, brother-in-laws and uh, they go rabbit hunting for the day. Um, it's a property that one of them owns. And um, it's a hot, sunny day. We see four men who are well off, who have uh, a bit of money or wealth or privilege in society. And, uh, we see the the fractures within their relationships over the course of the the rabbit hunt and uh we see the the class differences throughout the the day as um they they get to the property uh there's one uh who kind of maintains the grounds mm-hmm. and his young niece carmen uh who lives there with him along with uh juan's uh mother and we again see this this sharp divide uh, in the way that Juan and his family live, and even just the the things that these four men uh, bring with them uh, on this hunt, the the luxuries that they bring with them, which I find really uh, really fascinating. Yeah. And we also learned that the three middle-aged men were actually uh, veterans of the Spanish Spanish Civil War. Yeah, and so uh, we, and we we don't have to ask which side they're on because of their status in that in that time in Spain, uh, they had to be on the on the side of uh, the nationalist, you know, the Francisco Franco fighters, yeah. and and you can tell uh, the divide in the classes be- between them and the man who actually uh, maintains the land, yeah. and his and his family there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that um, again this this. The sharp class differences, the the almost uh, rapacious greed within the the four men that are hunting, uh, which I find incredibly um, there's a loathsomeness to a lot of the men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And yet, you know, something that struck me uh, as I was kind of taking my notes on it, it would be so easy in a film like this to just make them ciphers, to just make the men kind of uh, blank stand-ins for the point that Saur is trying to make about Spain at this time. And yet he he is able to make them fully fleshed out characters with their own uh, problems, their own needs, their own uh, issues that they're dealing with. Um, and, and so 
it's it's a really rich, well drawn out world uh, that he's created, and yet you also know that these are these are men who who do represent the the avarice, the the acquisitiveness, the desire for more uh, in Spanish society. There's a a moment when when Juan is is talking to to someone else and says, you know, this this land could be could be made better for farming and we could have a really incredible crop. But all all Jose wants to do is Senor Jose wants to do is to make this into a, a place for rabbits <laughs> and we learn early on that the rabbits are all diseased uh, that there's a, a, a sickness at the heart of this this uh, hunting ground which and is think, symbolic of, of yeah, course of, of, of course of, of the, the dictatorship of Spain during that time mm-hmm. yeah so I think it's it's incredibly uh, potent the imagery that we get here yeah. well it's it's amazing how I mean almost early on you get to know the backgrounds of these three men. It's like he, the, almost immediately they're there, and we can we can we can see uh, each of their personalities, each of the bags they bring. We know the reason why each of them have come to this hunt. It's not like uh, we're going to find out later on. You know, we we do get more facts as it goes along. We find out yeah. about other other characters who they they knew in the past, but somehow we we, we know he's not going. He's not teasing us. He's letting yeah. us know exactly what, what's what's in these characters' heads. In fact, there are certain times during the dialogue where we where there's voiceover where we actually hear their, what they're thinking. Each of the characters. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that we get those those little bits of inner dialogue mm-hmm. for each of the the men, and that we get the 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 competing inner monologues and we see beyond the facades of each of them throughout it it makes the the story incredibly rich well you know paco who's the most wealthy of the three yeah of the three older men he uh he actually uh, looks straight in the camera and says there's no room for the weak in life and there's it's kind of like each of the persons if that's there at this point they're they're sitting down having a little picnic almost they've got Mm -hmm. their food out they got their their liquor and they're you know contemplating going on this hunt, and uh, we can see each of them's reactions. And and each of them at the time are speaking directly into the camera. In fact, they're they're speaking to us, you know, the audience. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's a lot of remarkable, uh, so self assured uses of camera movements throughout the film, yeah. especially you know placing the actors inside their setting, inside this environment. They're so desolate. Uh, in fact, you know, it could, it could be out west. In fact, this could almost be be seen as a western. Yeah. Know, where you have, you know, men with guns, you know, and their 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 competitions with each other and with their society. So yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think it's it's really it's really powerful the way the way he does this, and I I think those close ups of the men throughout are oh. so striking. Oh the goodness. way it just he gets right into their faces and they dominate the frame. Oh yeah, there's there's one extreme close up where you go from a, a a man's eye all the way down the length of his body and you're yeah. and you're seeing the sweat coming off yeah. his skin. It's just extraordinary shot. Yeah, that body pan from yes. I, th- I think it's from Paco to Paco, Jose. Yeah. Yes, and then and it, it continues. And, and it, it's tracing the landscape of this body 
and moving it to the next body. Um, It's it's a beautiful, incredibly evocative image that uh, is is really striking. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know we also see throughout the the different levels of privilege within it because while Jose has the land that they're all hunting on, he's also overextended. And he he doesn't have as as much financial wealth as he would like, and and as he needs to to make ends meet, and so he's asking. The whole purpose of this hunt is to ask for a loan from Paco, and to try to drum up the old feelings of camaraderie and friendship again. Um, and uh, so it's it's really again fascinating. And then and then we also then get this this secondary uh, moment in which Juan asks Jose for an advance on pay that he's owed. So he's not even asking for a loan. He's just saying, you know, look, I, I need money for medicine for my mother. Uh, can you can you give me uh, an advance on just a little bit of the money that I'm supposed to get paid this year? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, oh, oh, yeah, no, you're not going to get paid that much this year. Sorry. And again, the the ways that different characters respond, and you know, the fact that that here Jose is asking for money and expecting to get it from Paco, and then yet turns around and treats this man that takes care of his land so poorly, I found really fascinating, and uh, it it honestly it made me originally think of the uh, the biblical parable of the the servant who asks his debts be forgiven and then yet refuses to forgive someone else's debts right yes, yes. Um, so i just think there are lots of levels that he's playing with here okay uh, let, let's get into the hunt itself yeah it starts and, off with this gun fetish sequence i mean oh, it's just extraordinary uh, yeah it's these close-ups on the guns and the uh the preparations it's uh wonderful shots here yeah yeah and uh, I do want to warn listeners that uh, it does feature some extended sequences of animal cruelty. Yes. And so if this is something that is uh, perhaps difficult to watch, that uh, this may be a film you want to avoid because it, yes. um, it is difficult and it's long. It's not one or two sequences, but there are some several long sequences here that are challenging. Yeah. And not just not just rabbits. There are other animal animal cruelty yeah. scenes throughout the film. Well, yeah, different sequences throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do think you know. I, of course, looking at it from today's eyes, I, I I think that there are other ways that we can, you know, that you you wish that the filmmakers would have achieved similar effects. But I do think that what he's getting at here is again that unending greed and you know that shot the shots of them shooting the animals and the unending sequence of of guns and death and adding more and more dead bodies to their baskets and belts is just so striking oh and also similar to the scene in rules of the game Jean Renoir's film with the rabbit hunting And, and you notice that one of the uh Probably the meekest of the three men, uh, the uh, brother-in-law, Luis, how he says, well, you know, real hunters don't hunt the rabbits. 
Yes. And so yes. you can figure, well, this is symbolic of, of what, what is also happening under yeah. fascism about, yeah. you know, the, the weak are the ones who, who get destroyed, you know. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful sequence that, yeah. you know, I think is meant to turn your stomach. It's meant to evoke disgust. It's meant to be it's meant to be brutal. And it is a brutal, brutal sequence that I think yeah. is is hard to watch all of these these extended sequences here that are are really challenging so yeah i can't they're they're hard but the way they're shot with these quick cuts these rapid fire shots and the close-ups and the the fragmented bodies of the the men so we're just seeing their hands on the triggers and the their hands on the their belts as they're lacing up the the rabbits i mean it's all it's all incredibly uh, effective and in a way it's preparation for for the ending i yeah. don't want to go into spoiler territory yeah. but there there, uh, it, there is a, a a burst of violence towards the end that uh perhaps is seen it makes it even more you're more aware of the uh just how violent this this last scene is yeah 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 no it's a it's a honestly an incredibly like you said it's 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 so assured and it's so confident in all of its construction. Yeah. I'm, I'm incredible. I was, I was impressed with how well put together some of these sequences were. Yeah. Um, and I think also it's, it's incredibly aware of the, the destructive tendencies of this type of man as yeah. well. We also get this, this constant sense of, of these men wanting more throughout you have, um, I think, it is uh, Enrique, the um, the brother-in-law, who is constantly leering after Carmen, the the young niece, this uh, underage girl. Yeah. And you have the other men kind of looking at uh, scantily clad women in their magazines, and right. you've got this this sense of this constant escalation of them wanting more and more and wanting to be able to take more and more and wanting to be able to to have more and more as if it's their right yeah and the two wealthier of the men are not only married they also have young mistresses yeah which yeah. is you know one of the reasons why uh jose needs more money because because uh, to keep her takes yeah. up more money than to maintain the land and the uh, actual the man there who's keeping taking care of his land you know yeah yeah one last thing that struck me is the valley that it was shot in was also you know it was a, a place where civil war battle occurred and we get this this sequence where jose is part of his way to try to butter up paco he uh takes him into a cave that he has locked up and we have this uh, dead body that he is holding on to, that he hasn't you know, turned over to the authorities to be properly buried. He hasn't interred himself, but he's just leaving it there as a curiosity uh, for him to be able to gawk at or to show to friends, but he's keeping it hidden away as well. And I just, I, I keep thinking about how, uh, you know, Spain uh, at that time, you know, the wounds and the issues of the, the Civil War were so present 
Uh, but they also nobody wanted to talk about these things at the same time, you know, and so uh, unless you were part of a fellowship that fought together, you know, uh, but there's this 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 sense of holding on to this dirty little secret or holding on to this mm-hmm. piece of history uh, that I find really compelling here. And what's what's amazing is that here's a film with three, at least three characters where you are pretty disgusting, you know. Yeah. It's there's there's no character that you can uh, attach yourself to and try to empathize with. Yeah. Because but you you see each of them and and you realize that I just how good a movie it is whenever you can actually make a film where it's that enthralling these characters so you really you know can't find anything to connect to them. Yeah. Connect yeah. with them. Yeah. It's it's an you know it's an incredibly strong film that blew me away when I watched it. I was really, really impressed by it. And uh, it got me excited for the next couple of films that we're mm-hmm. going to talk about. Yeah. I can say one last thing about this. And uh, Sam Peckinpah chose this film as his, has spoken about this film as being one of his inspirations for the wild bunch. Oh, so yeah. it, so if, if you're familiar with the wild bunch, then you can, you can now see exactly uh, what he was talking about. I never knew about this. Time. I was doing research for this podcast about Peck and Paul's appreciation of the hunt. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Yeah. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk about Peppermint Frappe. This is the film that has been on uh, the Criterion's digital platforms uh, the longest out of the three that we're going to talk about. And this is definitely a uh, fascinating film. Why don't you get us started, uh, Michael? It's uh, another psychological thriller, uh, more in the Hitchcock mode than the first film. But what we have here is a situation where um, we have a doctor who's a radiologist, probably a specialist. He's got a, a very nice looking nurse. and But uh, there's this wealthy friend of his who has come back into the picture and he discovers his, his wealthy friend is also remarried, this younger woman. And he gets this, I guess, obsession with this younger woman. Both of the characters of the younger woman and the nurse are played by uh, Geraldine Chaplin. This is her first film with Sora and the first of, I think, maybe eight or nine films that they did together. They were actually partners in real life, too, for for about 12 years there. And so uh, I'm sure that once he realized how good an actress she was, he used her in almost every one of his films for the next 10 years. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's similar. There, it, it recalls certain instances of, of, of other psychological thrillers, as I said, Hitchcock, especially Vertigo. And then I see little little remnants of, of last year in Marion Bad mm-hmm. in that we have a situation where when he meets Elena, he recognizes her. Well, he, he believes he had seen her before in a previous year. And he, he approaches her. She says, oh, no, that, that wasn't me, you know. And that kind of sets up a situation where later on uh, there's this form of uh, back and forth, almost like a, a teasing or maybe a, a form of, of almost like a humiliation that mm-hmm. creates between these two characters. And then, of course, knowing that she's not approachable, he turns all his attention to his to his nurse who uh, looks very similar to, to this uh, Elena that he's attracted to. And then he starts making her over, which is also shades of vertigo. But from there, I uh, don't want to go into spoiler territory. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating study of these, of these characters. Yeah, I found it really, really compelling. And, you know, again, I think that he is, I think where, uh, where vertigo, I think that Hitchcock makes the, 
Scotty character, um, the Jimmy Stewart character, uh, wants wants that character to be, you know, it's, he's darker, but he's maybe a bit more sympathetic in the audience's eyes. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, Saura sees this uh, Julian, the doctor, sees him as uh, conniving, incredibly controlling sees the the shades of the, the vertigo sees this these manipulations as as destructive um yeah. rather than because uh, it, it starts to get into some incredibly dark territory as he in the fr- in the even the very first meeting with anna um to try to make her look like elena more he he begins to tell her that oh you know you you need to you need to lose some weight and you need to do this and you need to exercise and you need to do this and you need to do that and it, it's it's a very different type of molding that then then you get in the Hitchcock version and it, mm-hmm. it feels more sinister um, and I think that Sour shoots it more sinisterly the the swirling camera around Anna as she's using his rowing machine <laughs> and uh it's 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 incredibly uh unsettling throughout yeah that's the scene where i think we're at first you you feel some uh kind of pity for this character the yeah. doctor because it's rather pathetic when you think about it yeah and then at, at, at a certain point you can see with there's something inside him that's going that's that this not really evil well well eventually becomes evil but yeah. there, but you can see there's something there to start with that we didn't see before yeah and sora is now letting us know exactly you know uh letting that char- character's full feelings coming out yeah yeah i find it uh I, I again i think that that in the three films that we're going to talk about today i think that there is a a real interrogation of masculinity mm-hmm and uh, these these desires to control, to acquire, to uh, possess, and I think that in this, especially this this desire to possess Elena, is really you know it, this may not be the the full the the only thesis uh, that's been explored here, but it's it's such a part of what is what is happening in the in the film, and. Um, it's a powerful interrogation of, of masculinity here. And yeah. uh, uh, I think that uh, the the performances are all really, really incredible. Mm-hmm. The fact that it, even though Geraldine Chaplin is playing both characters, uh, the fact that it is, it takes a moment sometimes to remember that it is the same <laughs> actress playing both characters. Yeah, it, It's a testament to her, performance she's amazing in this yeah and i i'd never really appreciated her work before until i saw her in, in about four or five of these films that's on the channel yeah. of course I'd, I'd seen her in altman's nashville mm-hmm. and uh, a few other films but but uh her her films her are, are i mean her performances here are pretty good you know yeah you know. yeah but uh, that's funny you're talking about uh, masculinity one of the words i've got on my notes here after watching three movies is the word machismo yeah. It's like that's that's almost like uh, the theme that runs throughout these three films we're going to be speaking about. Well, and I and I think that you know that there's the stereotype in you know of, of in Spain of just embracing machismo, right? And yes. you know yeah. that that machismo is the way to be, right? Yeah. And I think you you see uh, uh, if you're watching uh, kind of standard Spanish cinema, 
you see that machismo just embraced and um, just lauded and it is it is really refreshing to have these three films interrogate that and to show how this this is destructive this 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 desire to possess this desire to control others and i don't think anyone would uh would think after watching this film that julian is a character to be emulated yeah. and and you can see how he's almost a symbol of of his his sexual repression is almost a symbol of the societal repression yeah. un, under the Franco regime, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exactly. Like, like there, there's this holding back, you know, or hiding away certain, certain feelings. And, and, and when we're talking now about, uh, about Sora's uh, symbolism, it, it's not really overt. It's not really, it's not going to hit you in your face. Otherwise these films never would have been made. You know, yeah. it's something we can look at, we can look at 40, 50 years later and say, Oh yeah, there it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't see it. Almost like the films of Berlanga, yeah, Belaga is very similar to this, and, and but he always added a more uh, satirical hints. Mm-hmm. I don't see any satire in in, in Sora's films. You know, yeah. it's not like he's 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 getting it to the point where it's, there's almost a comic uh, look at something to make you look at it more. Mm-hmm. It's it's it. There's nothing comic about it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is. Uh... I think this draws us in uh, both of the, both of the films that we've talked about so far draw us in with tension with creating a mood that 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 continually ratchets up our sense of of suspense and uh, almost horror. I mean, this is this yeah. almost delves into horror at times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's also a longing for the past that's representing yeah. these first two films, especially yeah. maybe not in the later, but it's a longing for like a. A, a past that was more idyllic, yeah. I suppose, and and yeah. in this case, uh, there's there's flashbacks to to these childhood childhood meetings with him and his yeah. friends. Well, and and you know, uh, Julian is is constantly you know as the third wheel with uh, Pablo and Elena. They they keep returning to uh, Julian's childhood home, yes, and uh, that has fallen into disrepair. And they they will play on this these these toys and play on these games and and do these things that again children would do right. right. I think that, that that there is an arrested development within the, these men. Yeah, uh, and it's almost like the the couple is playing this game of humiliation with Julia. Yeah. No one no one just just how pathetic he is. Yes. You know? And, yes. and not knowing, you know, what kind of reaction he's going to actually eventually, you know, make of this humiliation. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's this is a really striking film. Uh, we should also say that this is, you know, while the hunt was in black and white and is just in gorgeous black and white, this is in luminous color. <laughs> the color here is so gorgeous. I think this is a, a magnificently. Uh, realized uh, film. The cinematography is great. It opens with uh, a series of magazine collages being put together mm-hmm. that make sense when you see how Julian is attempting to remake Anna, and it it all just uh, the 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 structure of the film is is just it's perfect. This is maybe my favorite of the three that. Uh, that I watched. 
That's great. I, I yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you was able to appreciate it. I had to watch it again because I had uh, it. I saw it back on the days of Hulu. Yeah. And so I'd forgotten most of it, and this and this was a, a, uh, watching it again really brought back uh, just how striking the film is. And you're talking about the photography and all that. You know, filmed in widescreen color. You know. Yeah. Which is unusual in Spain at that time. Uh, mm. And we'll also something similar between these three films is that. Uh, this post-production uh, dialogue, which may yeah. cut off a lot of people. In most cases, it's not it's not too bad. In the case of Geraldine Chapman, I think, I'm not sure at that time she was fluent in Spanish. Some of her later films, she is fluent and she is speaking her own dialogue. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems in these in these early films that, that she is being dubbed by another actress. I can't say, you know, because sometimes yeah. there's a little miss, miss thing between the... Uh, the lips and the vote in the actual dialogue. But yeah. Other than that, you, you know, don't you know, that's how it was done. That's how he did things yeah. in Spain and Italy during that time. So yeah, don't don't let that get in your way. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. There's two images that Sora uses. Uh, uh, first of all, he, he the character Julian is cutting out photos from magazines of, of women. He cuts out a, a photograph of the two young girls of Rochefort. Which is amazing, you know, uh, the Deneuve sisters yeah. that, who it, in Jacques Demy's film that only came out a few months before this film. Mm. And, and so they, this must have been publicity shots or something like that, which is, you know, it just that just struck me just something so unusual. And another image that's used is uh, during a scene where they go to a museum and mm. uh, they see this this painting by an artist named Antonio Sara. And uh, turns out, that is Carlos's brother. He was a painter. Oh. And he paint and that was a pretty well known painting he did of Brigitte Bardot. At yeah. the time. Yeah. Okay. And so that was it was just you know, it's funny he got was able to get, get that painting of his brothers into the film. That's really and, interesting. And one other thing. Someone else agrees with me that creme de Mont tastes like toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we haven't talked about the actual name of the film, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Frappe is, is this is drink just made just made it, it's creme de menthe over crushed ice. It's really not really a, a cocktail in that. No, no, yeah. it just it looked like lic- like just liquor yeah. straight, you know, which yeah. I, you know I like my liquor straight most of the yeah. time, but that that looks like a um, yeah uh, a really unappetizing liquor. It, it doesn't taste like a, it doesn't look like a, a great drink anyway, you know. But, but yeah. I just I just hate creme de menthe, so that was. That's basically what it is. <laughs> well, you know, I think um, it's interesting to see, you know, we have this this love triangle that becomes a love quadrangle in Peppermint Frappe. And uh, we go back to the love triangle in Stresses 3. But, you know, I think the question is, is it actually a love triangle? And uh, uh, I think that, to me, is the most compelling aspect of Stresses 3. Is this all in the uh, main character? Uh, is it all in Fernando's head? Mm-hmm. Or is this is there actually something going on? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating film that, you know, I, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about the film as I was doing my research. There's just not a lot out there. Um, it seems to be one of the more overlooked films out of the set that we're talking about today. But I think it is still an absolutely captivating film that again, examines machismo, it examines, interrogates masculinity. Uh, so uh, what are your thoughts about Stresses 3? 
I really liked it. I, I would go back to the original Spanish title, which is almost like a play on words. It's uh, stress as stress, stress, you know. But I guess they had to simplify it for, for yeah. English. But, <laughs> but uh, it, uh, he, he goes back to black and white in this film, widescreen, beautiful black and white. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's, it's, it's about this relationship between these three people. A man, one of his employees, and his wife, they're all going on this supposedly business trip, but they're going to take a side trip to the beach. But they're on the way to to, to investigate a possibility of doing business with uh, with someone on the coast of Spain. It's, uh, I was looking at my map and I saw that the trip from Madrid, where they start out all the way to the, to the beach, is uh, over a five-hour drive. So I guess mm-hmm. in, in a way, if you consider the time that's represented in the film, that was that was a pretty long drive. And then it's just the tensions that build up because, of course, as you said, the husband suspects that his employee is having an affair with his wife, mm-hmm. who's played again by Geraldine Chapman, and a wonderful performance. Yeah, and I I, I think it is really interesting the the ways that we see Fernando uh, over the course of the film begin to unravel, mm-hmm. and you know and. and I think both Fernando and Teresa, the the his wife, they have these these inciting incidents in them that happen that stress them, you know, that that stress the marriage, and you know, Antonio's the one who seems to be the most uh, calm, cool, and collected for the most right, part. Yeah. But from the very beginning, you know, on their drive, uh, they take a, a Teresa asks uh, Fernando to stop briefly so that she can relieve herself outside and uh while while they are stopped uh antonio the the employee decides to stretch his legs too and uh fernando is like okay well uh, i'm gonna take off and leave them here for a moment which you know seems like an incredibly terrible thing to do and then you see him just go around the corner and he climbs up to the top of a hill so that he can spy on them to see what they do yeah. when they're left alone. Yeah, that's and, the first sign that there's something about this marriage that the husband is uh, is seeing things that maybe or may not be there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and nothing happens. Nothing yeah. happens yeah. to the between the two of them. And over the course of the, the film, every everything that he does to test the marriage, um, to test her... All it does is is make her more and more frustrated and push her further and further away. And there's a, a car accident that they come upon on their drive and they rescue a woman from the, the car. And the car accident really shakes Teresa up. And she's incredibly shook up by seeing this woman who is, who is injured badly and, and bleeds on her. And uh, she just needs to be away from everybody for a little bit. And that fuels Fernando's suspicions and fuels his jealousy. And it just, it continues to compound throughout the course of the the film. And again, everything he does just continues to push her further and further away. He never lets a moment go by where he can't take advantage of a situation where he could get some kind of proof that something's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I find this this really, really, again, you know, he he he's unwilling to trust his wife. He's constantly trying to control her as well. 
And so he is constantly doing these things to to force her to be what he thinks she needs to be. Uh, so they stop at his uh, brother's house, and while they're resting there, she tries on her sister-in-law's clothes, and he says, that's disgusting, trying on other people's clothing. Yeah. You know, his his nephew gives her a, a bug uh, encased in a little pl- kind of like a slide, and he wants her to throw it away. And Yeah, for uh, no reason at all, for no particular yeah. reason, you know, it just such a little things like that he's so nitpicky yeah there's a there's this desire to continually force her into a certain mold and uh and i find that again again i think there's this this honest look at a specific brand of masculinity here yeah and his need for control even goes to the point where he's willing to get rid of one of his best employees sending him out of the country to another to another location just just to show that he can actually control whatever yeah. relationship is that may be going on between the employee and his wife, you know, Antonio. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a it's a slider film. It's not as, um, I don't think it's quite as um, rich as Peppermint Frappe and the Hunt in terms of density of images and density of subtext, right? right. Yeah, because, uh, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It's exactly. Not, it's not, you don't have to start looking for symbols about what does this represent in, in Franco uh, Spain. You know, it's, yeah. this could be just a relationship, you know, just a drama between yeah. three people. Uh, yeah. Say, for instance, almost like um, he, I think he approaches it almost like Antonioni in that mm-hmm. there's a certain uh, it, it's not the ennui that you get in Antonioni's films where there's like this this feeling like, you know, what's what's it, what's the meaning? What is it worth? You know, like, what, what are we doing here? Yeah. There's general frustration here among these three people in their relationship, except in, except Antonio. He actually, he, he's kind of aloof about the whole thing for the most part. Mm-hmm. He, he, he can see what's going on. And, and you see him sometimes trying to intervene on the perhaps on, on the behalf of Teresa, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and and Fernando just takes this as another reason to to believe that there's something going on between them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I think this is a really uh, you know a really strong character study, a really strong character drama between yeah. the three of them. Uh, I think again, I think Geraldine Chaplin is great in it. I think that Juan Luis Galliardo, uh, who plays Antonio, is fantastic. Fernando Sebrion is really great as fernando so i i think it's a the the trio of performers at the center are all really great and i think they play off of each other really well and did you notice how fernando the actor the actor who plays the part he looks so much like john cassavetes to me yeah and, yeah. and, and also I mean, and antonio is so handsome his character the actor who plays him I mean, he was like Banderas handsome, yeah. put it that way. So, yeah. so it's e- it's easy for Fernando to actually see this younger man mm-hmm. actually approaching his wife and having an affair with her. Yeah, I I also think you know something that strikes me about the last two films is that um, there is also this constant commentary and conversation about the age difference between the men and uh, the character played by Geraldine Chaplin. Mm-hmm. And that it is, it's constantly commented on. I, I think that uh, all too often in in films, 
these these films with older men and younger women are um they take these things as givens right that uh, a younger woman is going to be interested in an older man and and here they they treat this as as either an aberration or as, as something that is you know in in fernando's case it makes him insecure that he has a younger wife and oh she's going to run off with the first young person that comes along mm-hmm. um in in uh peppermint frappe uh, elena talks about with julian about how uh well you know uh, pablo and i have this understanding that you know marriage isn't forever and that i can Oh yeah, I'll 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 be off when I'm ready to be off, essentially, mm-hmm. and that I, I'm I'm in this for what I can get out of it, and and it's 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 incredibly honest about the the fact that that there are these these differences, and um, it's it's not quite the just the the these young women are are just irresistibly drawn to these older men because <laughs> I, I think there's that myth in in a lot of uh, films that 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 young young women are just always drawn to the virility of older men yeah and these films are made by older men you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i mean like in the situation let's say like sabrina i mean is audrey hepburn is there ever a question about her being almost like a just out of school i mean like 20 22 yeah. years old yeah. and she's with humphrey bogart yeah they're even brought up and, and yeah. don't even mention woody allen films but yeah yeah it's, it's just it's just it's just never 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 in question within the context of the films themselves you know yeah so I, I i appreciate the fact that this in these films that are interrogating masculinity that that is also remarked upon throughout mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it may not be a huge part of it and and it may not be uh the only thing that's talked about but it's it's an undercurrent of the films themselves yeah. well in the hunt the two older men both have a young much younger mistresses that's yeah. it, that's even in a film without any women in it yeah that, that that situation is there so you can say really all three of the films there's yeah. situations where an older man is with a younger woman yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I think there's an awareness that this is uh not necessarily uh the the order of things no well not in not in spain during the 60s i suppose you know. yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah i you know i i i like stresses three i think that um it's it's the one out of the three of these that is probably the easiest to overlook yeah uh, but i think it's still really worth catching as well yeah. it is very 1960s when you think about the films that was coming out during that time you yeah. know like so so that it, it's not that it's dated. I mean, that story could take place anywhere in, in mm-hmm. any time. But but there is something very unique about yeah. that, about that era in those films. Yeah. Did you want yeah. to talk a few minutes about the scores of the film? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, particularly in this last film, Stress 3, there's no score at all throughout the whole film. Well, throughout 90 percent of the film. And then when they get to the beach, uh, uh, they pull out a, a uh a radio and they listen to that's the only that's the first music in the film and it's diegetic and then the scene where fernando stays behind the husband and the wife and the employee goes goes uh scuba diving that's when the score starts up and mm. it's, it's 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 kind of score i, I describe as as boom and doom you know yeah <laughs> where, you, where you hear these just these chord strikes you know and then it's just quiet and then it starts up you didn't hear it again it's remarkable that that I had I had not even realized throughout the rest of the film there had been no score at all, 
and so at, at this point, are you you know are we seeing uh, a lot of this? Is what we're seeing is in Fernando's head, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it's I think it's kind of almost like he's using using the music to let us know that we've we've reached into a different a different narrative and a different point of view as far as the yeah. film is going. And so I, I just I just really like how he uses music in that. And, and of course, in the first two films, uh, the Marshall score, almost military type score that's used in uh, The Hunt, mm-hmm. especially the scenes where they actually go on the hunt it's, and, and, and the three men also being uh, ex-veterans you know, of the war, there's this almost military marching music. Yeah. And then during... Um, and music is used quite a lot in Peppermint Frappe, and it's almost always diegetic in that they're listening to the radio, and it's usually this rock music. In fact, they have they have fun making fun of uh, of uh, and there's some dance scenes where they actually yeah. there's one particular song that keeps coming up, you know, and it's used as a finale song as well, you know, a piece mm-hmm. of a piece of, of rock music, yeah, yeah. And we get some of that kind of classical music at the beginning of Peppermint Frappe as well. And I think that there is that contrast that that Julian in Peppermint Frappe thinks of himself as oh, yeah. more cultured and more um, polished and sophisticated than uh, than the others that he runs around with. Yeah, especially uh, Elena's taste in music. He, I think yeah. it actually disparages her, yes. her, her, yes. her, her, her taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's an, that's an interesting point that, uh, especially in Stresses Three, because I think that ending, uh, without giving too much away, uh, because you know uh, it does get uh, so experimental by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the it plays with what is real and what is not real. I think in some really interesting ways, and uh, you could see Saura really. Uh, playing with fantasy and uh, memory and projection a little bit more there. And yeah, I hadn't even really paid much attention to the score uh, in the film and the fact that there wasn't a score. Um, but that that's a fascinating observation. Even the way the ending is processed as far yeah. as the o- overexposure yeah. of, of certain scenes with yeah. the light, yeah. uh, just, it's just a, an indication that something different is going on. You know? Yeah. No, I think that's a really that's a really astute observation there. That makes me really appreciate that that final chapter of the film even more. But you know, it's it's funny. I never thought about it. when I saw these film, three, three films over the weekend. I said, I'm not sure how we're going to talk about these films without talking about the ending. And yeah. we've done it. You know. Yeah. And I'm yeah. surprised that there's so much in these films that and the, mm-hmm. the endings were so important. They they're very you know tightly plotted films. Yeah. And that going actually into the stories sometimes would, uh, would be spoiler, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we could talk this much more than an hour over three films that are uh, without revealing the endings. So yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 well, and and you know, I I'm typically not someone who really cares too much about doing spoilers uh, for films, but mm-hmm. um, but I think these are films as we're digging into these films that are. Um, in the the back catalog essentially of the criterion channel these are films that people aren't necessarily going to uh know a whole lot about and they're not going to have watched uh possibly and so i think that this is uh this is a great way to hopefully whet people's appetites uh for them and get people interested in watching them without uh giving everything away about them yeah people People should listen, should watch these uh, these films that you know 
that are there and, and there's so many so many great ones out there it's, and uh, ones you never heard of once you you know only heard of maybe some of the directors but yeah it's it's, it's a wide range of catalog that people need to explore yeah yeah well any uh final thoughts on uh these first few films of Saura or about uh, Saura in general I'm not, I just I'm just uh happy that you and I were able to to talk about them because uh, getting the chance to see them again really really made me appreciate his work so thank yeah. you oh you're very welcome well uh we'll have to to continue this conversation about Saura at some point uh maybe we'll do a part two on this uh later in the year yeah well, thank you, Michael. This has been a pleasure. Oh, same here, Josh. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I definitely want to thank uh, our Patreon supporters again for supporting the show and for supporting the the work that we're doing here. I'd also like to thank our uh, home network of Criterion Cast for all that they do in uh, making sure that this uh, show gets out to as wide an audience as possible. And if you haven't checked out the other Criterion Cast shows, make sure you do that at CriterionCast.com. And there's also a lot of really great reviews uh, on the website as well. So you can uh, check that out too. Uh, you can also uh, find uh, the show at uh, my home site, uh, CinemaCocktail.com. And so uh, make sure you check us out there as well. So. Michael, uh, once again, thank you for joining me. Uh, where can people find you online? I am in the Criterion Channel Club, of course, and also Criterion Now and a couple of other Criterion Facebook groups. Uh, but you can find my list at letterbox.com under my name, Michael Hutchins. I'm sure that Josh, you'll link to the streaming only Criterion Channel yes, films. Yes, uh, I will. In I this definitely podcast. will. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at Patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at Patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss on a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.